Welcome, and thanks for checking out the Living Word Family Church Sermon Podcast. Before we get to the message, we'd like to invite you to check out Living Word Family Church if you don't already have a church home. For more information, you can check out our website at livingwordfamily.org. Fast today. Let me start with that. Our church-wide fast begins today. I hope that, it's it's my heart that you would all participate in this. Statistically, that might not be likely. If you haven't made up your mind or, or maybe you haven't thought about it, it's not too late. It starts today. You can decide. And, and don't say something like, well, I haven't picked anything yet and already ate something today, so I guess I'm not going to do it. This is three weeks long. And I didn't mention this last week, but I, I do almost every year. Historically, there's nothing in the Bible that says one way or the other, but historically slash traditionally, people who have participated in extended fasts, like during Lent, for instance. They don't fast on Sundays. They considered that actual sacrilege to afflict the soul on the Lord's Day. Sunday, the Lord's Day is a time for celebration, so whatever. If you're doing a 40-day fast, you take Sundays off. You do whatever you want. Uh, What I'm saying is, again, nobody's going to get kicked out of the church for not participating in fast, but I believe it will benefit us as a church to do this together. Choose something to lay down, to give up, to forego for three weeks while we seek the Lord for direction, to get ourselves centered, to get ourselves focused on Jesus Christ, our Lord, and what our mission at Living Word Family Church is. Amen? So, uh, along with that, this, is the, this series is going to go longer than the fast. We're not just because... Uh, uh, you know, in years past, not last year, but, but for the several years prior to that, we chose a theme for the year, uh, the year of, year of giving, year of more, year of less. Uh, and and uh, this, of course, 2020, every other church in the United States is doing year of vision. Uh, it's, a, it's an easy one, 2020 vision, right? And we're not really doing that. We don't have a theme for the fast, uh, don't have a theme for the year, but we are starting this year off with a five-part series called Take a Good Look, where we are looking at certain things, people, uh, personalities, and uh, different periods of our lives, starting with today. The series is called Take a Good Look. Today's sermon is looking up. We are going to look at God. So great news, great way to start the year. You will hear in the next 40 minutes everything you ever wanted to know about God and more. You will have a comprehensive understanding of the Godhead 40 minutes from now. No, that's not, gonna, that's not true either, right? I mean, everything, every Sunday, every time we open the Bible, we are learning something about God, and he's not, he is not somebody or something or a subject that we can exhaust in any way. But there are some very concrete things that I think we need to know, nail down, uh, and establish in order for everything else we look at to be correct and right. We have to have a foundation. Uh, And we live in a world, you know this, especially here in the United States, that offers us so many options, so many ideas to choose from, so many beliefs. Uh, At this point in history, you know, right here in the good old U.S. of A., it seems the only thing you have to do to get people to sign on to you is just offer acceptance of absolutely everything and anything that people already believe or practice. Meaning this, that if we preach as Christians, uh, if what we are preaching as Christians is in any way seen as exclusive, 
it is going to be met with all kinds of resistance. But truth, by definition, is exclusive. If something is true, then something opposite of that truth is by definition false. Now, we don't want to be exclusive and dogmatic just for the sake of being exclusive and dogmatic, but we do have to base our beliefs on something other than our feelings. We already know this. So what is the source of our belief in God? What is the source of our belief in the devil? What is the source of our understanding about each other? How do we properly interpret the past? How do we properly process our feelings about the future? What is the source of our belief? It's the Bible. When we talk about our faith, when we talk about our doctrine, sola scriptura, only scripture. I remember, and I've shared this with you before, I had uh, uh, several times, you know, I was, uh, I I, uh, surrendered my life to Jesus Christ at age 12, almost age 12. And uh, I had a lot of zeal because the thing that meant the most to me about my salvation when I got saved was the fact that I never had to worry anymore about whether I was going to heaven or hell. I knew that my, my uh, eternal destiny was secure in the finished work of Christ. And so that's what I wanted to share with everybody. And I did that uh, sometimes with, with success and sometimes uh, n- w- not so much with success. But for many years, I guess I would describe myself as somebody with zeal but not much knowledge. I had not really applied myself to studying scripture, but I was always very interested in talking to people who claimed to be Christians, but maybe they came from different backgrounds, different traditions than mine, and I wanted to know, well, why do you believe what you believe? And I can remember early conversations with Catholics. I didn't have a lot of Catholic friends, and I knew very little about what they believed. And so, and what I began, and this, I'm not trying to paint all Catholics with this brush. I'm telling you about my limited experience. But I had several conversations with Catholics that ended with me feeling frustrated because they could not tell me why they believed what they believed. They would tell me about their practices. I said, yeah, but why do you do that? Well, I assume it's somewhere in the Bible. And and by this time, I'd read the Bible. And I'd say, well, I don't think, maybe you're reading it different than I am. What is it in the Bible that you think? uh, And and I'm only using Catholicism as an example here, right? Trust me, you'll see. This message is not to bash any particular belief system. But... The reason I bring that, that up is I finally gave up and I bought a copy of the Catholic Catechism. I figure I'll read it myself. And early on, in the early pages of this book, it says there are two sources of doctrine in the Catholic Church. And those two sources are scripture and tradition. Well, that answered the question. <laughs> that, that really helped me understand, well, where do these other practices come from? Well, they come from tradition. Well, All right, can we go back and explore the roots of those traditions and maybe clean some stuff up that might not be scriptural? So, uh, I'm going to read you something here, fast-forwarding to to much more recently recently in my life. I was following up, I mentioned, I don't know, last week or maybe, uh, I know in a recent sermon, I I, I mentioned a pastor, a friend of mine, who had strayed into error. And uh, I brought him up. Last time to talk about how uh, he, the thing that kind of got red lights going off for a lot of people is he, he kind of bought into this idea that uh, the Bible is, is like a family album and everybody gets to put something in there. Just because it's in the Bible doesn't mean it's, it's doctrinal. Just because it's in the Bible doesn't mean it's God's word. Can't trust it. Um, and he, and I, I tracked him down. I, I didn't contact him. I just looked him up, found out he's pastoring a, a Methodist church 
in another state. And here, I looked up their statement of faith, which a lot of people do. If they're going to check out a church for the first time, it's probably a good idea. Go get online and say, oh, what do they believe? We can find, you're not going to get the personality of a church from a website, but you can at least get some of the basics. And so I look up this statement of faith, and they have the mission, values, and beliefs. And it's not very long, so I'm going to read you the whole thing. Uh, and this is, by the way, just as what I said before is not meant to be an indictment of Catholicism, this is absolutely not meant to be an indictment of Methodism. This is this church. It's, uh, they say, we desire to experience and share the love of God as we daily follow the life-giving ways of Jesus. That's the mission. Well, that's safe enough. Our values. Learning to become more authentic followers of Jesus by putting into action the things he taught. Celebrating the deepest meanings, values, and hopes in our lives through fellowship, worship, spiritual formation, and ritual as part of our spiritual journey. Action based upon our belief in the importance of helping to bring justice, harmony, and equality to the world locally and globally. We accept and include all persons without regard to sexual orientation, gender, race, or other characteristics that may define cultural status. We value education, critical thinking, and activities that support health, healing, and stewardship with our world, and we want to, part- we want to partnership with organizations that participate in building and sustaining healthy persons and healthy communities. Exploring and learning from beliefs from our own traditions and the traditions of other faiths whose insight into the divine is seen through different lenses. Now, that's the first thing that really got the alarm bells going. All right, I'm going to go back and, and, and tell you a couple other things in a minute. But when I saw that, this is part of our mission to explore other beliefs and learn what we can about God. Uh, our beliefs. That was, there, that was everything leading up to this. Now, our beliefs. We believe that God is love and that God loves all people unconditionally. We believe as Christians that Jesus is the decisive revelation of God embodied in a human life. We believe that God intends for people to be whole and fully alive and that Christianity offers a way to fulfill this intention. That little word a says a lot to me. We believe that humanity is inherently diverse and that differences are to be honored. We believe that Christianity is one faith among many that Christians and that Christians are to respect all persons and other faiths and spiritualities. Now, do I believe Christians are to respect other people, people of, of different faiths? Yes. Am I called as a Christian to respect their belief inherently? No, I'm not. We believe that Holy Communion is a gift offered to all without restrictions or requirements. We believe, we believe that our faith calls us to serve others, to work for social justice, and to care for the environment. We believe as United Methodists that faith is grounded in Scripture, tradition, reason, and experience. And that Scripture is a chorus of voices that sometimes disagree. We believe that the United Methodist motto of open hearts, open minds, open doors is true to God's vision and life and teachings of Jesus and includes people of, regardless of uh, race, class, ability, family composition, sexual orientation, or any other barrier or to a sense of belonging. Now, apart from the fact that I would just describe this statement of beliefs and mission and everything else as feel-goodism, there are things that stand out here. And one of the things, of course, uh, the things that I stressed as I read it. I mean, come on. Scripture is a chorus of voices that disagree 
to me, one of the miracles of Christianity is that a book that was compiled over 1,500 years from so many different authors agrees as perfectly as it does. That our mission is to learn from faiths, faiths other than our own. This is, this is part of our mission statement. And that faith, and this is the biggie, the faith, that faith is grounded in anything other than Scripture. Ah, it was grounded in Scripture, but also reason, tradition, and experience. And oh, by the way, the Scripture that it's grounded in disagrees with itself. And this is the biggie. Out of all of that, I read nothing, absolutely nothing, about man's lostness, man's sinfulness, man's need for a savior, nothing about salvation, nothing about the cross, nothing about the resurrection, nothing about eternal life. And the reason I'm bothering with this this morning is that that's not unusual. There are no truth claims here. This is important to this series because of this, especially in this message. God is who he is. He's not who we want him to be. He's not who we wish he was. Now, he is more than we can comprehensively know, but he is not unknowable. He has gone to great lengths, very specific lengths, to make himself known to us. Here are some of the things he gave us so that we could know him. He gave us creation, and he gave us sense, and he gave us senses in order to process and experience creation and know him through creation. This is from Romans. That we can know him as, as part of creation, we should be able to look at creation around us and simply know this much, if nothing else. There is a creator. He stamped upon us the imago dei, the image of God. We are made in the image of God, and there is an innate awareness of God in us. We bear his image. He gave us the law, right? This is what we hammered home again and again in our slow journey through the Old Testament, that the law was never, he didn't give us the law simply as a code of conduct. He gave us the law to show us things about him. Here is the kind of God I am. I'm holy. The law does what else? It shows us how sinful we are. What else does it do? It shows us we need a savior. We need a Messiah. Speaking of which, what else did he give us? He gave us a savior. He gave us a Messiah. He gave us Jesus. The fullest expression of God the Father is God the Son. And he gave us the scriptures. Now when we talk about the law uh, as we read it in the Psalms, we can sort of broadly use that word law to include all of scripture. When, you know, when David says, how love I thy law, it's my meditation all day, we can say we love the word of God. But he gave us uh, more than just the law. We have the we have all scripture, and obviously there's a difference between the things that Peter, Paul, James, and John wrote and what Moses wrote, right? But we have the gospels, and we have the epistles that we also cling to and recognize and respect and honor as the word of God. And I say all of these things to emphasize how important it is to know the God we worship. We can't just simply say, well, I worship God, or I worship the God of the Bible. We need to know God. Who is this God that we worship, the God that we pray to, the God that we make supplication to, the God that we insult, the God that we ignore, the God whose name we honor, the God whose name we, we dishonor? 
because people respond to those things. Different people respond to those kinds of things different ways. What, uh, what, I, what I mean by that, if you dishonor me, if you say a careless word to me, if you ignore me, if you insult me, a lot of how I respond to that depends on what kind of relationship I have with you in the first place. This is kind of where we're going with this. So let's make some basic statements about God that I hope you know already. I don't think there's anything I'm going to say in this short list that you would disagree with. God is the creator and the sustainer of all things. He is the sovereign God. He is all-seeing, all-knowing, all-powerful, and everywhere. He is eternal. No beginning, no end. He is all-good. He is love. He is just. And he is holy. And when I say holy, I don't just mean that as another way of saying he's good or he's right. But there is, uh, when we talk about holiness, that the word is connected to the word sanctified, sanctification. Uh, sanctum sanctorum. That's the holy of holies. And what it implies is not just an extreme goodness, but an otherness, a separateness. You know, it's one thing to say that we are made in the image of God, which we are, but that's not the same thing, and we cannot say that, therefore, God is altogether like us. Psalm 50, I think, says exactly the opposite. Just because you did these things, and you did these things, and you thought because I didn't interfere, this is God speaking, you thought because I didn't condemn you in that moment, you thought I must be altogether like you. But I'm not. I'm going to rebuke you. Now, is there one particular way we can view God that gathers many of these concepts together? What I mean is, sometimes I need to focus on his love and his mercy, his tenderness. But sometimes, maybe when I've blown it, I heap guilt and condemnation on myself because I can only see him as a judge. I can only focus on his holiness. I asked somebody, this was back many, many years ago. Well, not that many years ago, because I'm not that old. It couldn't be that many years ago. But back in uh, college, I was having a conversation with somebody, a friend, a friend I'd known for years, who was going through a really tough time and, and, and just experiencing a lot of depression and beating up on herself. And I said, how do you picture God? And she uh, manifested in a way that was almost demonic. She screamed and said, I just picture him standing up there watching every move I make and he's holding a big stick and he's just looking for the next excuse to swap me with it. Now, have you ever felt so bad about something? Never mind God for just a second. No, always. No, no never, never mind God. But let's, uh, <laughs> keeping this at human level, did you ever do something bad and you were dreading facing your parent, dreading getting found out, dreading the punishment. Have you ever? Yeah, right? Was anybody else a bad kid? I'm not saying a bad kid. Did you ever do bad things? Did you ever do anything that made it a little bit scary to, to, to go report to your mother or your father? Because you knew discipline was coming. Now, in that moment, you didn't doubt their love for you, did you? I'm not going to tell my favorite story about that. You've heard it too many times. I need to wait a couple of years before I tell the story again about how I almost burned the garage down and all that other stuff. But there are certain times when no matter how much we appreciated our parents, we weren't looking forward to being in their presence because of something we had done, right? But it doesn't change who they are. 
And so sometimes maybe when we've, maybe when we've done something wrong or unfortunately because we've gotten bad teaching, too much emphasis on the legalistic side of things, the justice side of things, that the only, this is why you see these morons picketing churches and funerals and everything else talking about how God hates a certain class of people. It's ignorant. This is not an expression of who God is. But that doesn't mean God isn't just and holy. It's just that we see him sometimes through the lens of our experience. We see him through the lens of our bad decisions or other things. How do we picture God? Because how we picture him will have a lot to do with how we speak to him, how we approach him, how we call on him. Now, in the Old Testament, you will see uh, there are dozens, hundreds of prayers recorded. And every prayer refers to God uh, when it refers to him at all. Sometimes you just hear the cry of somebody's heart, but when they address God, it's God Almighty or Lord. And it's in a, uh, we've talked about this before. It's one of those things that's worth knowing in your Bible, most of your translations. It will have the word Lord, uh, and it's all caps, It's usually like a large L and then a small O-R-D, but it's still all caps. That, when you see the word Lord written like that in your Bible, that is there in place of the word Jehovah. That's the name. That's the holy name. Yahweh, or Jehovah, is usually rendered Lord in in our English translations, for better or for worse. But keep that in mind. So they're either praying Jehovah, calling him by name, or they are praying God Almighty or some iteration of that. And these are legitimate prayers, but this is how they related to God. And this goes back to Genesis chapter 4, is when sort of the, uh, I guess, the official beginning of prayer after the birth of Seth. It says, and then men began to call on the name of the Lord and began to cry out and initiate these conversations with God. And... uh, it's good. Like I said, when, when, they, when they prayed to Jehovah, Lord, when they prayed to God Almighty, they are acknowledging two important things, that there is an exclusive God. It wasn't a God, whoever you are. They knew what God they were addressing, Jehovah. And they also were expressing their, their knowledge that he was the sovereign God by calling him Lord God Almighty. But Jesus, and we also have a number of Jesus prayers recorded in the Gospels, how did, God, how did Jesus address God? Always, exclusively, as Father. This is significant because when he taught his disciples to pray in Matthew chapter 6, what did he say? Pray after this manner. Our Father who art in heaven. Now he was saying that before they were born again. This is a, and in the next year, hallowed be your name. This is a recognition of his holiness, his otherness, remember, and at the same time acknowledging the intimacy that God desires us to experience. Now let's stop and think about that. Now this is one of the sermons, this next part is part of the sermon that I preached when I was a young father, a new father. It's been a while, but I remember. I remember... When Riley was born, I remember when Rennie was born. And I can remember how full my heart was 
and, and I don't care if it sounds sappy to you, and if, but if you're a parent, I'm sure you can relate to this, how it's almost like God suddenly overnight increased your capacity to love, increased your capacity to care. So wrapped up. And it was really easy. I'm not saying this to insult anybody. It was really easy to get wrapped up in those tender moments with Riley because he was such a good baby and Rainy was such a bad baby and not on purpose she wasn't evil she just was hard to enjoy because she was so squirmy and cryy and everything else she snapped out of it about two years ago and uh, uh but Riley just was this I mean oh wow I mean that's that's honestly one of the reasons I gained weight you know, I used to be a runner. I don't know how many of you have been here long enough to remember seeing me run actually Sunday mornings before church, ran a stinking marathon. And then suddenly that I, it, I went from, hey, I got 45 minutes in the middle of the day, be a good time to go get a run, clear my head. Now it's like, hey, I got 45 minutes. Let's go home and take a nap with Riley. And uh, so thanks, Riley. Uh, but as he grew older, age two, age three, I began to be amazed at how angry he could make me. Not by being bad. He was still a sweet kid. He still is a sweet and tender guy. He's done stupid things. You have too. All right? He does things that make me mad. But but I was really amazed at this sweet kid who God used to increase my capacity for love could do things that infuriated me at age three. And so there were, some, there were some disappointments. There were harsh words. And then at the end of the day, this is part of the story you may remember, he'd crawl up in my bed, and he'd lay down next to me, and he'd put his hand on my chest, and he'd just look at me. Daddy, I love you. I love you too, Riley. Daddy, I love your fur. I love you too, Riley. Am I going to have fur? Yeah, you're going to have fur someday. I promise you, I never took those moments and said, oh yeah, if you love me, and if you love my fur, and if you want to keep petting me, then tomorrow, don't do this, 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 and the other thing. Just enjoying the intimacy. Whenever he would get in trouble, whether there was anger or whether there was discipline, his first response, his response, when it, whether it was before the spanking or after the spanking, uh, was always, I love you. Give me a hug. Give me a hug. Give me a hug. He wanted this instant reconciliation. There's something pretty instructive and cool about that. You know, because it's not one of those scriptures that we put on our refrigerators, but New Testament does say he chastens those he loves, doesn't it? chasing me lord no but if we are going through a struggle that we've invited into our lives and god pulls us out of it or god shows himself or reveals some things to us wow uh maybe i've become disconnected here maybe my first reaction should not be uh god how can you let me go through this and rather god what can i do to make things right be reconciled to my father because here's the thing this is another moment. I didn't actually have this moment in my notes, but I, I always feel like I have to share it when I start talking about those days. You know, uh, Riley's 16, almost 16 and a half. Uh, 
So if he has any memory of these days, they, are prob- they probably seem like the very distant, misty past. But to me, they seem like about two years ago. Can I get an amen from everybody over 35 or 40, right? But so these days are very clear in my mind. And I can remember this wasn't a deal. I hadn't had any issues with Riley and Beth had... Uh, had taken off. I don't know where Rainy was. She, if she was sleeping somewhere or Beth had her maybe. But I'd just gotten done mowing the lawn. It's this beautiful June evening. It wasn't hot. It was probably in the mid-70s. And I'm sitting out there on the sidewalk of my yard of our first house in St. Joe. And I'm just sitting there. And Riley is standing there just kind of leaning on my knees. You know, I'm just sitting back on the sidewalk and he's standing there. And I have a Twizzler in my mouth. You guys remember this story? And there's this moment where he's just staring at me. And I've got this Twizzler, licorice, red licorice, you know, hanging out of my mouth. And he leans forward and just chomps on the other end of it. And it was just like this elongated, stretched out moment where I'm standing there just staring into the eyes of my son, who's not trying to pull the licorice out of my mouth. We're both just enjoying our own ends of it. Kind of a lady in the tramp kind of moment, right? (laughs) And... I got to tell you, I had done a lot of thinking before and since. Hey, here's the kind of boy I want Riley to be. Here's the kind of man I want him to be. But in that moment, I wasn't thinking, now what do we got to do today? What plans, what can I invest in him today so that he'll be the man I want him to be tomorrow? All I was doing was just enjoying this moment. I wanted this moment to last forever where we're simply just enjoying each other. It's just like rays of love pouring from my heart to his and from his heart to mine. I really, really feel, I'm strongly convinced that God used that moment to show me something. This is really what I desire from all of you. I want to just be able to enjoy. We look back in the garden where it says that God walked with the man in the cool of the evening. What were they doing? Well, now, Adam, tomorrow we're going to head over to this corner of the garden and we're going to do some. No, no, no. They're just fellowshipping, just enjoying each other's presence. Why couldn't that go on? Because of sin. It's what we have to recapture. This righteousness, this right relationship with God. So when I think about those days, again, 16 and a half years ago, it doesn't seem like ancient history to me. How much do our early days, our early experiences our mistakes even, how much do they seem like ancient history to God? Days is with a thousand years with him. Do you think he can remember every golden moment we had where we are truly enjoying his presence? And all I'm getting at with this, in this message called looking up, is I think the best way to think about God, if we want to begin to get our arms around the idea of who God is, the best single way to think about God is to think about him as the perfect father. Does our father, our heavenly father, have expectations? He does. Does he experience disappointments when we make bad decisions? He does. None of this ever diminishes his love for us. None of this diminishes his desire to see us do well. Third John, verse 2. 
says this, Beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health just as your soul prospers. There's been a great deal of discussion about this verse over the years. Uh, People who want to attack uh, word of faith or specifically the prosperity gospel will say, this isn't God saying this. This is simply John being nice. It's a nice, friendly way to open his letter. Because who would, hey, it'd just be like us writing, hey, uh, uh, dear Gaius, uh, hope everything's great with you. You know, or, or how we used to open our letters. Uh, I don't know how many of you, we used to, maybe I had a pen pal. It's an email age now, but we used to actually write letters to each other. And you'd wait three days for it to get there. Then you'd count three days after that and hope they wrote you back. But every letter started something like this. Uh, dear so-and-so, how are you? I am fine. <laughs> and so this is it. Hey, hope everything's great with you. This is just John. And then he gets into the stuff. And and others will say, no, this is still the word of God. This is God expressing his desire for his children. Is this the will of God? Is this just John being nice or is this a, a friendly greeting? Or is this the will of God being expressed? I will tell you, it is the will of God being expressed. I'm, I'm saying that unequivocally. I'll tell you something. You read those first two letters by John and, uh, you'll find that John is not unconcerned with spiritual things. There's some hard things to puzzle out there. Uh, The things he says about sin, if you don't read them right, will get you thinking, man, am I even saved? This is the same John. He's a spiritual author. But he's expressing here the heart of a father. You've heard me talk about this before, maybe even somewhat recently. If you're a parent, a Christian parent, and your children are doing well in the world, all right? It's natural for us to feel good about that. My son made the honor roll. He didn't. But if he did, I'd get a T-shirt. He almost did, believe it or not. First quarter, he almost did. Uh, I say believe it or not like you thought he was stupid. He didn't think it was stupid, right? Uh, Or... Uh, as they grow, my son just got a great job today. My daughter got a part in a movie, which she might. Uh, just a little piece of one. Uh, and then she's going to be rich, and I can retire from this gig. No, no, I'm kidding. Uh, when they marry well, when they get a good job, when, when, they, when they succeed in life, it's not a matter of taking pride. We're simply pleased for our children, right? But if our children are not following God in the midst of all that, then if we're Christians, that ought, there ought to be a sense of emptiness there. There probably is. It's like, well, it's not that I want them to fail. It's just that what is all this worth? That's why he says, even as your soul prospers, you know, all things being equal, as long as you are right, really right with God, then guess what? I want you healthy. I want you wealthy. What parent doesn't want that for their kids? Look at the next verses here. This is 3 John chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. For I rejoice, well, only one chapter. Uh, for I rejoiced greatly, brethren. Sorry, I rejoiced greatly when brethren came and testified of the truth that is in you, just as you walk in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. 
Now, starting from that premise, you are walking in truth. And as long as you remain centered on that truth, you know what I want? I want you to prosper in all things and be in health. Now, here's the thing. As parents, even if my kid is not walking in truth, it's not that I desire that they walk in poverty and sickness. But I could at least recognize maybe if the world and sin are beating up on them, that will at least cause them to turn toward truth. I don't want them to be blinded and numbed by success and health and prosperity to their need for God. But if they already acknowledge their dependence on God, their utter dependence on God, then yeah, guess what? I want them rich. I want them healthy. Because I love my kids. Can it be that God is like that? We could go on and on in this vein. I guess that we, we, uh, we can kind of only scratch the surface here, but I do want, want us to get this. The heart of God when it comes to mankind is the heart of a father. He is a God who is always for you. He desires your good, and what is good is not a mystery. Abundance is good. Health is good. Stability is good. Success is good. These are good things. But all of these things, if they are right, are the outworking of walking in truth. If I manage to acquire and maintain for a while success, wealth, stability, my health, but if I don't know God... What good, ultimately, are these things going to do for me or for anyone else? Or as Jesus put it in Matthew 16, 26, what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? The world uses this term, and they don't even believe in the devil. He sold his soul to the devil. So if my children succeed in life by the world's definition, they get a good job, happy marriage, beautiful children, good health, lots of money, lots of friends, but abandon their faith, they lose. And I lose. I can't be happy for them knowing that they're missing that because nothing else matters without that. There's a sense of loss for children who turn from the truth. And as parents... We have to ask ourselves, what have I done to lead them to the right choices? Did we train them? Did we model Jesus to them? We can't be lazy about it. We can't beat ourselves up either. And you know, some of you know what I've been through in the last couple of years. But we know right out of the gate that we aren't perfect. We can do well, we can do right, but we're not going to do everything right. And we're not going to do it perfectly. You know who is perfect? God. He's the very definition of perfection. And his children turned away from him. The Father heart of God always welcomes us back. This is going to be super important in the coming weeks because it directly affects our faith. When I look at something that I want, and we'll start with a simple one. If I'm sick, if I have a disease, what is it do I want that I want? I want healed. No matter how spiritual I try to sound, well, God, what I want is whatever you want for me. And if it's your desire that I stay in this condition, help me bear this disease like a soldier. Help me to receive it from you as a gift. And there's nothing in the word of God that should lead us to think that way. So I see something that I want for me. And I wonder, is this what God wants for me? 
it's a safe place to start anyway, to say, what do you want for your children? How far would you go? Would you or would you not do anything in your power to relieve your child of a disease, of a sickness, if you could? And there's only so much we can do. But there's not only so much God can do. Does God want me well? He absolutely does. Does he want me well more than he wants me holy? He absolutely does not. But it's not an either or. Right? Right? Can I be well and holy? Can I be rich and holy? Can I be successful and holy? But as a parent, if I have to choose one of those for my child, which one am I going to pick? I'm going to pick holy. When my child strays, I don't have to finance and support their straying or their bad decisions. I don't have to applaud those things. But I can let them know, I still love you. I will always love you. But if you decide to defy me in this, you're on your own. This is essentially what God does. This is the whole message of the the parable of the prodigal son. Man had two sons. One decided, I want what you can give me right now, whatever my inheritance is, and then I'm leaving. The father didn't stop him. And he knew it was a bad decision. And the way the son lived his life bore that out. He blew everything, lost his friends, wound up in the pig pen, went crawling back to his father, and his father did what? Ran out to greet him. Hugged him, kissed him, put a robe on him, a ring on him, and threw a party for him. When your children come home, are you going to turn them away and say, sorry, you had your chance? I taught you everything I knew and you still turned your back on me? No. We pray for them to return, right? And we welcome them when they make the right decision. Uh, Praise and worship team, you can be coming on up here. Everybody else, go ahead and stand. When uh, kind of looking at this from a parent's angle a lot of times, but look at it from the angle of the child, because this is who, if you're a believer, then God is our father. And as we fast and pray, and I'll, be, uh, I'll try to do a good job of getting out something in your uh, inbox few, at least a few times this week, this is what I want you to meditate on. We're all, we, uh, what, even though I really strongly criticized that statement of faith, such as it was from that other church, uh, there is, there's a kernel of truth in there when we talk about our experience. We should not be basing our theology, our doctrine, our beliefs on our experience. But we can't help this. What we can't help is that our experiences are always going to somehow inform what we believe and what we think. We might have to overcome those experiences. Some people have been through some horrible, horrible things. And it might be the biggest hurdle in their life to get over just to say, if God is real or if God loves me, how could he have ever allowed this to happen? That's a tough, tough question. That's why we have to remind ourselves we have to see God as he reveals himself in Jesus Christ, as he reveals himself in the word. So depending on where what your experience is, when we talk about God the Father... And this is why fatherhood is under attack. This is why fatherhood is, is, is it's to the point now where, you know, the arts and Hollywood and movies and everything else telling us, ah, you don't really need a father. 
We've grown up in a fatherless nation, fatherless world sometimes. Uh, and so we say, well, God, God's a father. Well, who needs him then? My father beat me. My father abused me. My father abandoned me. That's not the father we're supposed to know. So when you pray this week, when you meditate this week, during this fast, pray that specifically. God, I desire to know you as you are. Do you know that that's essentially the very prayer? I've shared this before. I keep saying I'm going to dig up a video on this. It will be worth just dedicating a Wednesday night or something to just to listen or watch some of these things. The testimonies continue to pour out of specifically the Muslim world where you have genuine believers. I'm not talking about crazed jihadists or anything like that. You know most Muslims aren't like that. Uh, but they live in a, in a world where they're surrounded by that kind of rhetoric. And in the privacy of their bedroom, they will call to God. And the only name they have for God is Allah and say, I desire to know the truth. I desire to know you as you are. And guess who meets them in a dream? Jesus Christ. This is not an isolated thing. This is something that's happening now, I think, by the thousands. You can, you can hear people uh, who've been working that mission field for a long time, who have got story after story of this, when somebody's honest heart cry is to know God, God reveals himself. And he'll do that for a Muslim. He'll do that for a child of the devil. He'll do that for a Buddhist. He'll do that for anybody else. Will he not do that for his children? Even though he saved you already, do you think he still doesn't desire to reveal himself? Are we going to be so arrogant as to say, God, well, God, all I'm going to focus on is I'm going to just believe you for a new car for these three weeks. Maybe can we acknowledge a little humility and say, God, I haven't come close to knowing you fully. As satisfied as I am, as happy as I am, as blessed as I am, I desire to know you as you deserve to be known. Open my heart to that love. Let me see you as the father you truly are. It'll bless you. It might shake you, but ultimately it will bless you. Meanwhile, let's start with this. You will never even begin to comprehend the Father heart of God if you are not a child of God. But aren't we all God's children? No, we're not. No, we're not. Jesus himself said that. He looked right at the religious leaders and says, you are of your father, the devil. How do I, if I'm not a child of God, can I become a child of God? Or if I'm a child, if I've, people, children of God, haven't they always been children of God? No. We were all born lost. The way to become a child of God is to recognize that he is holy and I'm not recognize that's what's keeping me. It's not my lineage. It's not my church affiliation. It's my sin. That's what's keeping me from being a child of God. All right, so what have I got to do? I got to clean up my act then? You can't clean up your act. You read the Old Testament and you'll see the law shows us that we will never be able to clean up our act on our own. We need a substitute. We need somebody to pay a sin debt because the debt is too big for us. We can pay with our lives and it still won't put us in right standing with, with God. So what did, uh, what did God do? He took his son, the eternal son, God the son, and in the counsel of the Godhead, the son became flesh, the word became flesh, became one of us and bore our sin. He lived a sinless life. 
but God transferred our guilt, transferred that debt, everything that was wrong with us, laid it on Jesus Christ and poured his judgment out. Because remember, God is holy, God is love, but God is just. And he poured his judgment out on Jesus Christ at the cross. Why do we need not fear the wrath of God? Because it's already been poured out. He's not saving it back, waiting to swat you with it. He swatted Jesus with it. The death he died was my death and your death. But then he rose from the dead and comes out of that grave offering new life to us. He says, that life you've been living has been one that's separate from God. I've got a better life for you. I'm not going to make your life better. I'm going to give you a different life, a new life. I'm going to make you a new creation. Most of us love ourselves too much for that to be an easy decision. But when we recognize what's at stake, and when we recognize that at God's right hand are pleasures forevermore, it becomes easier. God, I need you. I need a new father. I need a new life. I acknowledge that I'm sinful, and I thank you for the gift of Jesus Christ. I thank you for the life that he gave, the blood that he shed. I receive that as payment for my sin. I acknowledge you as the Lord of my life. Come into my life. Come into my heart. Be my Lord and save me today. Thanks for listening. We hope that this message encouraged and equipped you in your walk with Christ. Make sure to follow us on Facebook or Instagram to stay updated with what's going on at Living Word Family Church. Have a great day.